Hello, and welcome to the Network Collective Community Roundtable. In today's episode, we're joined by Nick Russo, Jeff Tansura, and Nick Baraglio. And together, we're going to be taking a look into what segment rounding is, how it works, and some of the operational considerations when running it on your network. So sit back, grab a drink, grab a cookie in Russ's honor, and we'll be right back with today's episode. Sponsoring today's episode is Cumulus Networks. Cumulus makes networking software for the open modern data center. They're doing some cool things in the networking software space that we're looking forward to tell you more about later on in the show. To make things as confusing as possible, we have two Nicks on the show. So Nick, Nick, and Jeff, welcome back. Uh, why don't we get started? So who wants to kick us off with a high-level overview of what exactly segment routing is? I'll do so. Okay, Jeff? So segment routing leverages source routing and tooling paradigm. When packet hits the ingress node, the device looks up the destination, imposes label stack, and it becomes a tunnel. So if you look at how we call this seats, there are segments, and it could be AMPLS label, it could be APV6 header, it could mean topological instruction, it looks it could be a service-based instruction. It could be just metadata. Thanks to MPLS architecture defines an RFC 3031, labels could be looked up in global context or so platform-wide, or we could look up one label in context of another that's defined in RFC 5331. So label really is anything in this context. So I like, I like just idea of overview, because I feel like we're going to spend the rest of the show unwrapping exactly what all of that meant. <laughs> so, um, so I think the, the key part here is that like a differentiator from uh, like traditional MPLS where the, the path isn't necessarily determined at the, at the ingress node, that, that's the difference. So it's, it's source routing. The idea is as it enters the network, the path is determined from the very beginning. And we, we put a label stack on. Now we do see that in MPLS uh, with traffic engineering, right? Correct. Yeah, but uh, but this is different. How is this different? I'll I'll take that, Jordan. So I think I think one of the things about segment routing that makes it particularly interesting is that it can do a lot of what our traditional MPLS control plane protocols would do, like LDP and RSVP for traffic engineering. And it can do kind of the job of both of those, but in a different way. So to kind of allude to where Jeff was going, we can do source-based routing that is to say MPLS traffic engineering as an example, uh, using segment routing, but we can also just obviate the need for LDP if we don't necessarily need traffic engineering and we just want to uh, change the way we do label advertisements. And you know, I'll, I'll summarize it quickly um, because I think Nick has some good comments on kind of the history of how this came to be. But if we want to think about, uh, the way I like to think about it is, consider a protocol like LDP or RSVP. Those are protocols that run kind of out of band, if you will, or at least they're decoupled from the IGP. You can run OSPF with LDP, you can run IS to IS with LDP, you can run whatever you want. Any IGP will work with LDP, it doesn't matter. Just like with PIM for multicast, we can have a, a, a protocol independent of multicast, pretty self-explanatory, same for LDP. Segment routing integrates the label advertisement with the IGP. Um, and that is kind of a good thing in, in most ways, but it has a couple drawbacks. Of course, you're limited on your choice of IGP now, typically, uh, OSPF or IS to IS, which can carry the label advertisements. And we'll talk about the uh, segment IDs a little bit later. 
Um, but I know Nick had some interesting comments here about the when the draft started to come out in the original kind of scope around segment routing. So Nick, why don't, why don't you tell, talk about that a little bit because this kind of predates my knowledge. Well, so I believe, and Jeff probably knows more about this than I do because I just looked it up. Um, but the, you know, the original drafts were back around 2004. Um, and at least for me, you hit on a, a point that, sort of hits home, not necessarily, not necessarily historically, but um, as a complexity issue, um, anyone's building a very large network uh, that needs to have granular traffic control, understands layers, right? And so when you're distributing these attributes across the network, like you would an MPLS label, for example, or a ISIS header, if you were to deploy it that way, you first have to have, you know, you have to have the physical layer, obviously. And we're, we're not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the OSI network model here. I'm talking about like actual, like a sandwich, right? Um, you know, the bottom layer is the, is the physical model. And then you've got your, and then you've got your protocol, right? No, so your IGP is required for something like LDP, right? So if your IGP is broken, it's also going to, you know, make your your label distribution fail, which in turn is going to make your traffic engineering bits, uh, you know, it's going to be a bad day, and they're not going to they're not going to be distributed correctly. So the tunnels aren't going to form, or your traffic's going to be black holed. What segment routing does is it it basically simplifies that down into um, that one layer being the uh, the IGP. Um, it adds in what's called a TLV. Um, so, you know, if you think about di uh, distributing IPv4 or IPv6, those are just TLVs instead of ISIS. And I'll, I'll talk about ISIS because I know that one better. It's the segment routing layer, the label distribution is just another TLV inside of that. So if your IGP is running, your labels in theory are being distributed and you remove the complexity layer of having this other bit in the network. And the other piece that it does is it, in many cases, um, well, in, in all cases, essentially it takes, um, or in the RSVP case, I guess I should say, it takes state out of the network. You don't have to store the state of what the tunnels are doing in every device. It's put the label stack, as Jeff said, is pushed into the network at ingress and it knows the entire path uh, that it needs to take when it starts. So that's where the source routing thing, uh, source routing statement comes from. And network engineers of my vintage will probably cringe when I, they hear the term uh, source routing, because that was always a yucky thing back in the day. But this, this is, you know, realized correctly, I think. Of your vintage. But the product could be And uh, haven't been privileged working for uh, Redback Networks, where this draft came from. So the draft was called uh, Draft Tian MPLS LSP Search Route. And it was talking about using the made by labels, but still using LDP for, uh, for a label distribution. So it did part of what segment routing does today, but the idea of using single protocol for label distribution came up much later. All right. So I've heard, I've heard a couple of differentiators just to kind of reiterate, you know, those just to make sure I understand them. So the first is labels are distributed by the IGP, whereas there's a different protocol, a separate protocol that handles that in a traditional MPLS network, which is LDP, right? Um, the, the other thing that, that I heard, um, now I'm, now I'm being, now I'm lost. 
<laughs> um, is, is that it, the interaction surface has changed because of the fact that it's now integrated with the, the routing protocol. There's some benefits with a, with a tighter coupling there, but I imagine there's some drawbacks just like anything else. Anyone want to speak to drawbacks or potential drawbacks of, of going this potential path? Yeah, I see. I would say the one, and I know Jeff has written pretty extensively or he's researched this extensively, is the concept of MSD or maximum stack depth. So if you think about the way RSVP TE tunnels work is that it doesn't matter how many turns in the core that tunnel makes. It could be a zigzag all the way across the network. That label death is going to remain constant because every individual LSR along the path is going to generally perform a swap operation until you get towards the end. Uh, with segment routing, in order to have, it's kind of like uh, going on uh, airplanes and having, uh, you know, f uh, let's just suppose that we're flying really far away and we've got three or four connecting flights. Well, at the start of our journey, we get all five or whatever boarding passes and we just drop them off along the way. You know, imagine if your wallet was only big enough to hold two passes, you'd be in kind of a bind. So when we talk about maximum stack depth, the more turns you want to make in the network, for lack of a better uh, term, and again, it depends on a lot of other state factors, but in general, the more turns you want to make, the more customization away from IGP you want to take, the more labels need to be imposed in the beginning, because at every turn, you drop off your boarding pass, per se, you take a custom turn down a specific uh, adjacency segment to go a special way out of a special link for whatever reason, and that maximum stack depth, there are some hardware limitations on how deep that can be. Um, I don't know, Jeff, you might be able to talk about the exact numbers, but, you know, how many labels can fit. But in traditional MPLS networks, typically, the, you know, we typically see, you know, label switch paths with, you know, maybe two, three, four labels deep. The most I've ever seen in real life is five before segment routing. Now I see huge numbers. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how uh, MSD is being overcome. Sure. So to begin with, in the beginning, we said that segment routing label is not necessarily forwarding instruction. It could be service instruction. It could really mean anything. It could mean that you need to look up next label in context of previous one. So your label step could grow to 10 plus labels easily. So if you look at MSD today, and there are two RFCs published last month. So congratulations to us in ATF. Uh, you can signal now how many labels is supported by a platform or a link on the platform. This information is then used by pass computation element, PCE, to compute a pass that is taking MSD in consideration as a constraint. So now, when I know that maximum seed depth supported on the pass is five or seven labels, I'm not going to create pass that needs more than that. Uh, if we look at commercial silicon today, we are around four to seven labels. If we look at vendor silicon, it's somewhere 10 plus. So we're getting better, but use cases are growing as well. So traffic engineering is obvious one. So anytime, anytime you deviate from shortest pass, you need to impose additional label. Now we are trying to do service chaining. We are trying to do many other things that require more and more labels. So yeah, uh, that, that's, a, that's a definite right. issue. Um, you know, like in the network that I work on every day, we run um, explicit EROs. Uh, so we define the entire path with some software that rewrote uh, along our network, which is all um, LDP RSVP. Now we've got an international network and for defining a path that's that long, four or five labels is like, you know, the first third of it, maybe. So the, the limit of 
the stack depth is something that probably most networks aren't going to have to worry about. But if you've got a very large network that you want to really granularly traffic engineer, you know, you're going to want to start looking for the the uh, hardware that can handle, you know, 16 labels. And then if that still isn't enough, you've got, the, you know, and we're gonna, I know we're going to go into this a little bit later, but you've got things like binding SIDs and other ways of sort of stitching the paths together um, to define that full, you know, longer than the maximum stack depth length. But that's, so that's, I would say, one of the current drawbacks that I've personally seen. Um, and again, it's probably binding. not. To binding SIDs sound ugly. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds, it just, I mean, it, obviously it's a solution. There's a problem that needs to be solved, but man, I could just see that getting out of hand pretty quickly. I yeah, guess I mean, it solves other things too, but also you got to think about, we haven't touched on yet that there's a, there's a controller for, for these things, right? So you decouple, like I said earlier, you decouple the state from the network, right? So you're pulling that state out of the network. Something has to still track that state. And How so else could you define a full path, right? Like you, you, you right, know, right. Yeah, you need to know all the steps. Right. Yeah. So you need, yeah, we could, we can go into that now or we can go into that a little bit later. Yeah, <laughs> always trade-off versus gain. So trade-off here, you don't have any state in the network. Someone still has to hold all the state to compute all the puzzles to know all the limitations. Right. Right. It's a shell game. It's got to go somewhere. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> we're always, we're always just trading stuff off. That's uh, Russ would be proud as we're sitting yeah. here talking about how things well, are. One, one thing I think is worth mentioning, which is kind of, you know, we've been talking about traffic engineering and state and, and fine tune. One thing that I think is really cool about segment routing that I think is often overlooked is that if you're in a network and you don't have TE and you're not trying to do anything fancy, you can just forklift, turn on SR everywhere, turn off LDP everywhere. You're done. And that will work just fine. Um, you know, if you're doing traffic engineering, of course, the state and the other stuff comes into play, but you can just replace LDP with segment routing and take a whole protocol out of your network and really not lose much. And in fact, I think you would gain quite a bit. You wouldn't have to deal with LDP sync issues. I know we've probably all seen those before where um, IGP says go left, but there's no LDP peer with that neighbor, but there's one off to the right and you can't, you know, your traffic gets black holed in that case. So LDP sync issues aren't really an issue. Um, there's just less control plane traffic on the network. Um, this is something that I thought really useful for a network I've worked on a lot over the past few years. We didn't really have needs uh, for traffic engineering or fast reroute, but we absolutely had a need to overcome some of these LDP sync problems. So segment routing can actually be a, a great solution for even those very basic MPLS type networks uh, and then, like Nick and Jeff were saying, we can come and add TE later without having to bulldoze in all this extra state. We can build our controller behind the scenes, deploy it, and get all those benefits after the fact. I have a, I have a question here. Um, so, I mean, when we talk about traditional MPLS network, um, labels are locally significant, not necessarily, you know, uh, relevant across the network. When we talk about a stack of labels across the entire network, I mean, the labels then have to be unique, correct? Um, technically, no. And this is where things get a little interesting. So the, the label scope is still local. The difference is that, remember, since we're using link state IGPs, presumably we get all the information from the network. So if I'm the head end and I want to send traffic all the way across the network and there's multiple hops in between, I know what the label source path needs to be the whole way. And when we talk about, you know, maybe I'll introduce a little bit of it now is, you know, the concept of a prefix SID or a node SID. They're kind of similar in a sense, but for the different prefixes that we have, we can allocate a different uh, label for each one. And it may very well be possible 
that all the routers in the path just happen to pick the same label. And there are a couple blocks of labels we can talk about and how that gets allocated. Um, one of the things that can be tricky about MPLS sometimes is, you know, if you see the exact same label value all the way across the network, it may look like those labels have global scope, but it, it's, it's not coincidental, but it's also not global. It's just the fact that every router along the path has allocated the same local label, excuse me, based on the segment routing global block. So if everyone, if everyone has the same block and everyone is picking from the same pool and everyone has the same index for the same prefix, we're all going to collectively come up with the same label number. And it appears to have a global scope. Um, that's not always the case. SRGBs don't need to match. Um, this is getting a little bit technical, a little bit detailed, but just understand, I think that's a great point, and I'm glad you brought it up, uh, Jordan, because the labels actually don't have global scope in general. Um, I know, Jeff, you can probably talk about some of the enhancements or drafts that may globalize some labels. I know in, uh, in some label switch multicast context, I think there were some. I actually haven't worked with global scope labels much in my time, um, but in SR, uh, generally speaking, they're not. So there are more to it, right? It has to do with the fact that srgb doesn't have to be the same across different devices however if you do your same srgb and today in 2018 most at least commercial stacks allow you to configure label block allocated to segment routing the nodal seats are unique when using same srgb it's mandatory not to have same nodal seats if you use different srgbs however then your label becomes offset plus SRGB. So while it might look like same value, the end result, the label that's going into the LC is different. All right. Yeah. Uh, so, so Jordan, so here's, a, here's an example. This, uh, yeah. So here, just think of it this way. So suppose we all agree that we're all going to use labels 100 through 200 for segment routing. So all, of, all five of us on the call agree that. And we also agree that Jeff is going to be node SID index number one. So we take our sRGB of 100, we add one to it, and we all agree that Jeff is going to, you know, when we send traffic towards Jeff, it's going to use label 101, and we all agree on that. And if Jeff is at one end of the network and I'm at the other, and I need to send traffic through the other three of you to get to Jeff, I'm going to send 101, you're going to receive 101 and swap to 101, send it to Yvonne, she's going to, we're all going to do this 101 dance all the way across the network. And then you're going to be number two. So when we want to send to you, we all agree that 102 is used. Um, and in this case, like Jeff was saying, we all need to have unique indices when our SRGB matches. Otherwise, you know, there could be confusion there. But if the SRGBs or the segment routing global box uh, blocks are different, then you could overlap the indices. I, in my opinion, that just gets kind of sloppy. If you leave the SRGB the same, it gives the appearance of a globally significant label. And in my opinion, that can really simplify troubleshooting a little bit, especially for people really not too familiar with MPLS. Um, that's what I've seen deployed, at least in, in my limited experience, is a, a common sRGB with unique node SIDs for every device. So even though even though we're stacking labels, the the they can still be locally significant only because of the fact that we have the entire view of the environment. So we know that when we get to you know router X that's somewhere in the middle of the path, we know what labels it has for the particular either segments or nodes or whatever that we're most interested in. And we can say, we know that when it gets there, this is the label we need to use. So it's still only locally significant, but we're, we're, we're you know, pre-populating that. And when we talk about from a traffic engineering perspective, if we're building a stack of labels, 
We're, we're right, exactly. The next one that presents itself will present itself at the right time with the right label based off the device that is actually going to be seeing that label. That's exactly right. So you, right. you could have a big label stack and, you know, at multiple hops along the path, there's obviously going to be a lot of pop operations or in segment routing parlance, we call it next, but there's going to be labels removed a lot more frequently in order to expose the next lower label so their downstream router can action it. And that's just exposing the local label that that local router allocated. So, so it's the same logic of how MPLS works. It's just a different way of racking and stacking and allocating the labels. That's probably perfect. I think there's a couple terminology things we need to talk about here first, because we went, we went down way deep into the rabbit hole really fast. That's what we do. But why, why don't you bring us back, Nick? Why don't you, so, why don't you bring us back to where we need to be? Let's walk <laughs> back a little bit. So there's a couple of terms that we've thrown out here that might confuse people that aren't, that haven't spent any time with this. Um, the global, uh, the global label stack that we were talking about, the word global is confusing to a lot of people that have only worked in traditional MPLS or have never touched it, right? It's not actually global. It's unique within your contained environment. Um, and the other thing is a, what a SID is, right? We, we threw around the word SID a whole bunch uh, and I think we touched on what it was, but what a SID is, is just a segment. It's an identifying integer. It's a 32-bit integer in MPLS segment routing that is uh, in theory unique, uh, although there are, as Nick said, reasons for it not to be. Um, and there's a bunch of different kinds of these things. So every node will have what's called a node SID, and that is a unique identifier for that particular um, device. There's adjacency SIDs, which don't have to be unique. They're just unique on their segment or on their uh, adjacency from one router to another. Uh, there's an anycast SID that allows you to do some nifty anycast things. Uh, and then there's, like I said earlier, the binding SIDs. I'm guilty of this too. I just started talking about the binding SID, right? <laughs> but, so all a SID is, is just a 32-bit integer. You can also use things like uh, IPv6 addresses to do this in, a, in, in SRV6, which is still very much in its infancy from what I've seen, but- You could even use IPv6 within PLS data plane to make it even more confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Would it be safe to say that a SID is essentially uh, a label like in the traditional MPLS concept, but it, there's more, uh, there's different types of SIDs where in MPLS, a SID would be a particular, you know, uh, what would be interface or a, a segment of the network, right? So because of the fact that we have node SIDs, which maybe didn't happen, um, in traditional MPLS, I mean, we just are given more options and, and, and levels of control and the fact that it's not a predefined thing. You just said we could use addresses, we could use, I mean, we can embed different things. A SID is just a unique identifier. This is what is actually getting passed by the protocol. So let's right. say right. So you've got prefix seats that are with the prefix. Yep. The nodal seat is a prefix seat with N flux set. So this kind of prefix could only be host route, so either slash 32 or slash 128, while prefix seed is just, again, a prefix with label associated. Okay. Adjacency seed identifies an in single direction and adjacency. So it's not necessarily link physically, it's link as defined by IGP. So IGP adjacency. So this would be OSPF or IS2IS neighbor formation. That, so that if you look at implementation, Every implementation I've known has locally significant adjacency, meaning it must not be the top label anywhere else because it's meaningless. It should always be seen on the node that provided it because not know the context. 
And they are always encoded absolute value. You are not allowed to encode adjacency seed as an index. <laughs> all right. So, so now that we've now that we've established all of the you know baseline foundational components <laughs> that we should have probably done way at the top of the show before we started starting, um, let's actually take a second here. Um, we want to give a, a second to uh, tell everyone about today's uh, sponsor. Cumulus Networks makes networking software for the open modern data center. It's the only open networking software that allows you to affordably build and efficiently operate your network like the world's largest data center operators, unlocking vertical networking stacks. When this is combined with something like NetQ, an operational fabric management tool, organizations can take advantage of deeper analytics and advanced telemetry to increase visibility across the network and ultimately reduce the mean time to resolution. Your company's success depends on your network infrastructure. This is why, to ensure its fast and lasting growth, you have to be several steps ahead of your company's connectivity needs. So if you're future-proofing your network, why would you go with old legacy infrastructure? Like we said at the top, Cumulus offers networking software for the open, modern data center, giving you the option to choose the new way every time. If you would like to learn more, you can head on over to cumulusnetworks.com slash modern to check it out. Again, that's cumulusnetworks.com slash modern. So uh, I kind of I kind of cut us off there a little bit prematurely. I guess there's one more SID type that we wanted to talk about, which is the binding SID, which we talked about, which is kind of what we what led us to this thing that maybe we should define these things before going any further. So, so Jeff, can you tell us a bit about what a binding SID is? Like, how does that work? Absolutely. So mapping SID plays two roles. One it has to do with mapping server, which we're not going to talk about. Another one, and this is where we are going to see a lot of use of binding SIDs, is cross-connect. So what binding SID means, when you see the binding SID itself and it's signal through AGP, as all other types, it means cross-connect me to something else. It could be another LSP, not necessarily segment routing, could be RCPT LSP, and this was the first use case. It could be an optical path. There's additional work to how do we interconnect packet network to optical. Binding seed is another type. What binding seed can also do us is to expand into more labels. So for example, if you know that your MSD is five, but you need seven, at a router that is very close to your limitations, you could push, or you could push binding seed to the beginning. Then at this router, look it up and expand into four or five more labels. So there's a variety of use cases that are pretty interesting in large networks. Well, that's interesting. I mean, so with that in mind, I think we should talk about like when these other SIDs get used and why. Because I mean, we have a bunch of types, which is kind of a new concept when we when we talk about a label, right, or an identifier. So, so why do we need a node over a prefix or over an adjacency? Where do we see these used? Yeah, so I think, I think the, one, the one thing that helped me understand was if you think about in a traffic engineering environment, you know, if you, if you have an environment where you have just, you know, between every pair of routers, you just have one point-to-point link between every node and you want to steer traffic a certain way, you could just use, you know, node SIDs the whole way and say, I want to go through R1 and then R4 and then R6 and then finish up at R9 and you're all good. The difference, the adjacency SID uh, was a little bit interesting because what happens when there's two links between R6 and R7 and you want to pick link A versus link B? Well, you can't just casually say go from six to seven because you've got a fork in the road and you've got two different links you could take. Maybe one is a, a, a satellite communications link that's high bandwidth and, and uh, high latency uh, versus the other, which is uh, 
maybe a, a wire line that's low latency, but also low bandwidth uh, for whatever reason. So you may want to say, this is where the adjacency SID comes in, kind of like Jeff was saying, it's, you know, one, uh, it's an I, a link known to IGP and unidirectional. So when our traffic gets to this R6, we can't just casually say, go to R7's node SID. We have to say, use the specific adjacency SID on link A to take this path. So our label stack could be a mix of labels that were node SID based or adjacency SID based, depending on where in the path we go. And a lot of this thinking is the work of our controller that Nick talked about a while ago that would figure this out. And based on your constraints, you would say, you know, I need a high bandwidth path for this flow. It's not sensitive to latency. So when I get to R6 or whatever, I need to choose that proper link. And the adjacency SID is kind of like, I like to think of it like a link selector, if that makes sense. Um, so this is an example of how your, your controller would craft the appropriate label stack based on the constraints. And you can't always just use one type. You're typically going to have a mix within your label stack, especially for more dense, complex networks. Let's, let's talk about that controller a little bit. What, what makes up the controller? Where does it live? Um, how, does it, how does it do its thing? So if you look at classical, what we call is the undone right deployments, you would see a network that's still doing reachability distributed. So all the prefixes, seats, all distributed by protocol of choice could be ISS, could be OSPF, could be BGP. So what you now need to do is to share all this information with the controller. That is somewhere outside of the network. Uh, normally we would do this through BGP less. It's an extension to BGP that gives us ability to encode link state plus segment routing extensions, plus T metrics, plus anything you really want to share from IGP domain to someone else. You encode it in BGP, you send it to the controller, and then controller could build its own representation of network as per IGP, so networking graph. It could build networking graph plus semantics, so for example, bandwidth, for example, unidirectional delay, unidirectional any kind of information you want to attach to your computation. So at this point in time, controller knows as much about network as every device in the network. Right. Now, are, are there controllers out there today? So I mean, like, so I guess for me, from a practical standpoint, you know, what, what are people using for controllers in a segment routing network today? So if you look at large vendor, obviously there is uh, Cisco, which is done on top of uh, ISXR. There is uh, one by Juniper. There is one by Nokia. And probably there is more, but those, those, three, those three I'm familiar with. Okay, so, so we see them from large vendors. Do we see any, you know, any open source or vendor independent so uh, controllers? OpenDaylight open supports segment routing as well as BGPLS for northbound communication and PCAPXR for southbound communication. Uh, Onus did some early work I'm not sure about the control plane integration. They did support segment routing statically provisioned. Yeah. Okay. So from a, from a controller standpoint, if we, if we dig a little deeper into that, as someone that came from a pretty long uh, stint doing SDN stuff, like experimental and production, let's say OpenFlow, which I did, one of the things that the segment routing controller brought to the table that nothing else was doing at the time, and, and in my opinion, solves a lot of the like kind of yucky corners of deploying an open flow network, is that 
it allows your network to fail cleanly without the controller uh, being present, right? I mean, your tunnels are obviously going to potentially have problems, but it's no longer like answering ARP requests and doing things like that. It has a topological view of your network, typically via BGPLS, and it's able to push out its, in my experience with it, it pushes out its, uh, you know, its configurations using PSEP. Uh, and Jeff hit the, the, the three that, uh, you know, the three major ones, right? Juniper's North Star, Nokia's NSM, and then Open Daylight supports it, although I haven't actually gotten it to work yet. Uh, Arista has like a, uh, on GitHub, like a reference controller. Um, although it's not, I mean, it isn't a production, uh, you know, you don't want to run it in production, right? But it'll prove that their segment routing stuff works within their environment for what they've got. Um, but it, but it solves a lot of these problems, you know, if, if we want to get buzzword compliant, right? It solves a lot of these problems that SDN had that, you know, everyone hand waved over, except for those of us that actually went and tried to use it. Right, figured out that it, it had some of Everyone these. Everyone hand waved. Well, I mean, yeah, I did it myself. Yeah, right? yeah, no, it's true. I so mean, it, it allows it allows you to run a very robust SDN network in a geographically diverse way, which was always one of the limitations of things like OpenFlow. Right, it didn't scale across, you know, high latency links or links that have you know large uh, geographic spans in between them. So is it safe to say that the vendor implementations are more refined uh, than interoperable uh, controllers at the moment? The ones yeah, I've played with are... It's pretty know. interoperable. Uh, we've been working on interoperability for probably six years. I remember first uh, interoperability event in Berlin with the NTC. Uh, by now, it should all work well. With okay, so maybe, maybe that was an unfair assumption. So we mentioned the big name vendors that have uh, SR controllers. Will their controllers work in, I mean, segment routing being a standard, right? They should work across any vendor platform from a, like you could run a Nokia controller with Juniper hardware or, you know, like, I, I don't know. I'm just trying to pick things yeah. out. Yeah. Okay. Well, so that's true to a certain extent. Um, the Nokia controller seems to be pretty complete. Um, the Juniper one, so the way that Juniper is currently implemented their segment routing stack is some of it is PSEP and some of it is NetConf. So it doesn't necessarily always use the same communication mechanism depending on what you're doing. And so my guess is that eventually things that support NetConf will work with it. But right now, the things that need NetConf, from what I've seen so far and what I've played with, they need to Juniper gear. Yeah, when you split configuration management across, it becomes problematic. So read the release notes carefully is what I'm hearing. Make sure you understand what, yeah, what, what works with what before you start diving in. It's not something that's, you know, go in and just buy anything or go in and, and implement something as a trial. Like you're going to have to plan this out pretty carefully. Yeah. And the, the other thing I think the is, you know, are standards, right? Yeah. Right. The PSEP is out there. And like Nick was saying, you know, PSEP, you know, PSEP is pretty common path computation element protocol. You know, that's a probably worth a whole nother show. But one thing I think we can talk about in just a minute is there are different flavors of how you do your controller, your PCE and your client, like your, your MPLS provider edge router, your PCC, how you do that integration. There's a stateless variant. There are stateful active and stateful passive. There are PCE initiated and PCC initiated. There, there are a lot of options and only certain things are supported. 
for certain versions and certain platforms. So unfortunately it's, it's hard, you know, like uh, Jeff was saying, we've been doing interop testing for several years because there are a lot of different permutations between vendors and features. And, and Nick even threw another wrinkle in there about not even using PSAP and using NetConf, which is another, I didn't even know that was a thing till just now. And that sounds like a smart idea too. So lots of different, you know, a huge, you know, five dimensional matrix of all the different things to be tested there. Um, I can say that just in my personal testing, the uh, iOS XR platform, you know, in about five commands, you can set up a very basic, not very robust, but it does have basic features for um, doing some of the PCE functions. And that's useful for testing. I know Nick's done some pretty extensive uh, open flow type stuff with it. Um, so there is some experience kind of out there. Um, you know, one thing that I always thought was interesting is like Nick said, you know, the controller can fail, it can get blown up, it can die, your PSAP can fail, your BGPLS can totally fall apart. And then you'll just, you'll just fall back to just regular IGP based segment routing as if you didn't even have it. And that's a pretty good fallback solution in my view. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, and, and we talked about earlier about, you know, like if you wanted to take the first, you know, easy early step is, is just, you know, go and enable segment routing and disable LDP. So, I mean, a controller isn't required in every instance. A controller is really only when you get into uh, traffic engineering or, or the type of manipulations where you're going to be manipulating the whole network, where you need the entire state on some sort of device. Sure. To, to, to set up label stacks or, or, or stacks, uh, SID stacks, I guess would be the correct terminology here. I'm not sure exactly what the right, right words yeah, are. Segment routing has very good way to interoperate with uh, LDP through mapping servers, which is, again, topic for another show. It has uh, support from BGP, so you could signal your labels initially instantiated in IGP through BGP prefix plus label. Oh, so, so fantastic. BGP is a controller. That's exactly what we need another protocol. It's not a distribution machine is a controller, but <laughs> yeah, you've got all the right tools to build rather large networks. Okay. Yeah, the, like Jeff said, the, the mapping server is just a, it's basically a, a feature on a router or it can be a standalone device that interworks between an LDP and a segment routing domain. Um, and again, we don't have to go into that now, but there are a lot of good transition tools that allow you to migrate to segment routing um, without a whole lot of pain. And, you know, BGP is part of that, LDP is part of that. Um, so for people looking to do this in production, you don't, unfortunately, you don't necessarily have to do a forklift type approach. Of course, that's one way, but there are a lot of good migration tools as well. I would compare it to a PVS6. There's absolutely no reason not to do it. There's absolutely no reason not to do it. Is that why you said? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially compared to LDP, there's really no reason not to do it. I mean, even aside from the controller and the TE, if you're, if you're just running a basic LDP network and you've got almost nothing to lose by, by turning on segment routing, I think you'll, you'll see a lot of advantages pretty quickly. Most and again, this was, this was a big use case for me. Yeah, I think one of the nice things about segment routing that is, it should be fairly obvious from what we've said is it's very compartmentalized and it's very modular. You can take it, you can put in pieces of it and you can use it and it's, primary goal from what I read, um, I wasn't there obviously, is, you know, it simplifies things, right? It makes things that are complicated easier to manage by taking elements out and containing them within existing elements. And you can, like Nick said, you can just turn it on if you have gear that supports it. And I think this will inform to use cases, which I think we're going to talk about soon. You know, if you have gear that will support it, there's no reason not to do, do it instead of LDP. And if you're into open source stuff, uh, FRR has OSPF implementation contributed by Orange guys. So if you run 
open source, you can do settlement routing too. Look at that. Our friends and I keep bothering them to add the ISIS version because I want it. So I'm <laughs> until they do it because I can't do it myself. <laughs> nice. Um, so, you know, we've talked about traffic engineering, but what about reroute? So we, we, I think we did a, a whole show on this when it came to MPLSTE and, and failure detection and, and some of those things. I mean, are there any special mechanisms of segment routing or does it follow the same principles? I would say, I mean, from the general principles, I, I don't remember exactly what we talked about last time, but the, the concepts about P space and Q space and the intersection and, and all that fun stuff, you know, long story short, if we can find um, a loop, let's call it a loop free midpoint from the two, from what I'm trying to repair, if I'm trying to repair a path from A to B, if there is some node in between A and B that isn't, you know, that there, that there won't be some kind of loop. And again, there's some complex word verbiage behind that I won't get into here. That's all still here. The big difference though, is that within segment routing, we don't necessarily need to create these targeted LDP sessions like remote uh, LFA, for example, we don't need all that extra state and we don't need to do that because we already have a context of all the labels in the network, not just from our LDP peers. So we can statelessly build topology independent LFA or TI LFA. I like to think of this as really an upgraded version of remote LFA where we can use segment routing to give us fast reroute, uh, generally better, better coverage, you know, much like TE based FRR without remote LFA, uh, but without all the state. So I think Nick used the term hollow core uh, to describe that. <clears throat> so we can get that same behavior out of segment routing for fast reroute. Um, personally, I haven't deployed it. I have a high level of how it works. Maybe Jeff or Nick, you can talk some more about that. Yeah, so, and another important point, if you wish to deploy path protection, so end-to-end, -end, but not local, you could still use segment routing to build secondary paths that could compute all the resources needed for it and have it pre-instantiated on the addend. And when you receive notifications, your primary went down, you could switch. So you've got all the goodies you had from RSVPT plus LDP plus IPFRR in a single protocol. Sound, it sounds like a miracle. Everyone should just go do it right, do today, it right, right? <laughs> <laughs> Your network is big enough and you need these functions. I think it's really probably the next this will be the next widely deployed architecture model i th i think for i was gonna say we're, we're hearing a lot about it which of course is why we're doing the show right is that it's coming up a lot more often i mean, I, I even have customers and i work in you know mid and large size enterprises <laughs> like who are talking about segment routing uh today so it, it, i definitely do think that we're on the cusp of a broader deployment it is it is awesome to get some insight from you know some people who've been you know running it in production <laughs> and, uh, if you look at a large network most of them are already around segment routing for years to people like microsoft walmart yeah what they are thinking about now is traffic engineering in data center and segment routing pretty much the only technology that gives you traffic engineering with relatively low complexity so it's more and more. Yeah, excellent. So let's let's talk about, I mean, that kind of leads us to the next section. So let's talk about where, where we can expect to find this today and where, where do we think it's coming next? So like, what, what are the use cases? What are the people who should consider it? Um, you know, like where, where do we expect to see it both now and in the future? So going back four years, there were two camps really for segment routing. One that wanted to simplify, so completely replace LDP no traffic engineering whatsoever. Another one, people like British Telecom, they were running thousands of RCPT tunnels in their network. 
So, you know, it's soft-state protocol, it requires refreshes. It was unmanageable. So the second camp was trying really to build traffic engineering that, is, that requires less state, less processing, and more flexible. Yeah, I think I think the Jeff touched on a couple of the very early customers. Um, you know, Walmart has a very large national footprint that's all segment segment routed. Um, Microsoft uses it for their interdata center uh, traffic engineering bits. Comcast is using it uh, on their backbone. So you know, big big networks that have a need to simplify where they can. I think you know Jeff mentioned Orange contributed OSPF. Uh, SR to FRR, one would presume they're running it or else why would they write it? Um, so, you know, carrier networks, I think, are the first real, uh, you know, they're the tip of the spear when it comes to deployment of this type of model because they have big, complicated networks and they want to simplify how they manage them. You know, an automation will get you so far, but there's a certain value that you can't really match by having topological awareness of your entire network and being able to manipulate it from one place. So taking that, I could see this moving from, you know, carriers and service providers that want fast reroute and loop free uh, alternatives and things. And that moving into like the large data center uh, networks where they may have, you know, complicated uh, loops and things like that, that they want to, they want a more granularly traffic engineer, but basically anyone that wants to simplify and and have the potential or you know use the use the ability to be very uh, deliberate about their traffic engineering and their traffic paths, I think is uh, prime for a user of this do, technology. Do you think that most users who will be looking at segment routing are doing MPLS today? Or do you think that there's, you know, something about segment routing that will drive people that, that maybe have avoided MPLS in the past into, into, into running segment routing? Personally, I think it's both of those things. But I think the, the early adopters will be the ones that have RSVPTE and they have existing MPLS networks that they want to simplify. If you look at how we implemented the SAR MPLS, the data plan is exactly the same. It knows nothing about segment routing. You program exactly the same functions. Uh, while the theoretical or logical function is continue. What happens on the silicon, it's still swap. You just swap same label, but the same label. You are not continuing with it. So for MPLS, it's obvious. It's just better control plane. It's better managed with same data plane. Uh, IPv6 is very different discussion and it requires a lot from hardware. It requires a lot from thinking how to use it. One might use it as an overlay from host to host. So it's much more complicated and I think it's still in the future. There are two deployments, large ones, one SoftBank, and I don't remember another one for the rest. <laughs> All segment routing deployments I've known of are MPLS. Okay. Yeah. I think it's a good place to wrap up unless uh, there's anything else you think that we, uh, we need to hit. Uh, so I guess before we go, we should give everyone a chance to tell people where they can be found online. Uh, so, uh, Nick Baraglio, why don't we start with you? Where can people find you? Uh, I have a Twitter. It's at Forwarding Plane, and I blog at forwardingplane.net occasionally. You sound so excited about that. Just, uh, <laughs> I've been adding a lot of configuration stuff to it. because I've been seeing. That's awesome. Yeah. Good deal. Jeff, where can people find you? 
Uh, mostly LinkedIn. I also make sure that whatever I publish on LinkedIn get copied on Twitter. But <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Nick Russo, we can find you everywhere now. Like yeah, I, mean, totally. I see your yeah. name popping up like on, on every site with content being generated. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to burn out one of these days, but yeah, <laughs> blog is, uh, or my, my website is njrusmc.net and Twitter at Nick Russo 42518. Awesome. So Yvonne, Yvonne's been quiet this episode is because she's on the road. And when I say on the road, she's literally on the road. I think she's recording this from, from, <laughs> from a vehicle, which is actually rather impressive, but um, I'm not actively driving. Though. No, that's true. Not yeah. driving down the highway, but uh, this is yeah. the most on the road that any of our participants have, I think have ever been. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> so Yvonne, where can people find you? Uh, on Twitter at Sharp Network, um, on LinkedIn, and here at the Network Collective. Awesome. So I'm Jordan Martin at BC Jordo on Twitter, um, jordanmartin.net, uh, a very, very neglected blog that you probably could ignore for the time being. Uh, obviously, I uh, spend most of my time here at Network Collective. If you like this episode, there's lots more like it. You can find us at thenetworkcollective.com. We're at NetCollectivePC on Twitter or on LinkedIn and Facebook and all the fun places. So come find us. We'd love to chat with you. If you haven't checked it out yet, you should absolutely go and check out uh, Network Collective Community Membership. Um, it's, uh, it just keeps growing. Awesome conversations that go on in the Slack. Lots of great content for our members. Uh, definitely worth checking out. Thanks a lot for listening today, and we will see you next time. <laughs>